So I'm thinking about collective awareness, which I believe, I think of as the models we use to uh, collectively process information about the world, to understand the world, and to understand ourselves. In fact, I think it's worth distinguishing our collective awareness at three levels. One is our models of the environment, our models of how we affect the environment, and our, our models of how we think about our collective effect on ourselves. And so, you know, understanding the environment is something we've been doing better and better for many centuries now. Uh, celestial mechanics allows us to understand the solar system. It means that if we spot an asteroid, we can calculate its trajectory and we can think about whether it's going to hit the Earth and maybe even send a rocket out there and deflect it. So um, uh, it's an important thing. I mean, another, another example of collective awareness at level one, thinking about the environment, is weather prediction. It's an amazing success story. Since 1980, weather prediction's steadily gotten better so that basically every 10 years we can predict the weather one day further out with the same accuracy we could uh, one day before a year, 10 years ago. And so the accuracy of weather prediction has gotten dramatically better. We spend $5 billion a year to make weather predictions. We get $30 billion a year back in terms of economic benefit. Um, so that's level one. Uh, level two, the best example is climate change. Uh, you know, climate change is in the news, it's controversial, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, we know that most scientists believe that the models are actually pretty good. Uh, and the mere fact that we're even thinking about it is remarkable because climate change is something that whose real effects are going to be felt 50 to 100 years from now. And so we're making a pretty uh, strong prediction about what we're doing to the Earth and how we're changing it and what's going to happen. And it's not surprising there's a little bit of controversy about exactly what the outcome is. But I think we all know it's really serious. And uh, we are going to be increasingly re redirecting our efforts to deal with it through time. Um, but the really hard problem is collective awareness at level three, understanding our own effect on ourselves. Because we're complicated animals, we think. And um, we have disciplines like economics that try and help us do that, but um, we have, they have not been tremendously successful in the same way uh, these others have. Um, climate predictions has the has big advantage that it could piggyback on weather. So because weather predictions have been getting more accurate, climate models also get more and more accurate sort of automatically because what is, what is a climate prediction exactly? Well, in a climate, you don't try and say what's going to happen three days out. You try and say what's going to happen if things change. So if we pump, you know, 100 parts per million more CO2 into the atmosphere, how much is that going to warm, thi warm things up? And the way you run one of these climate models is you run a simulation of the weather, and you run it for a really long time, and you make averages, and you measure the average temperature in your simulation, and you do that under lots of different circumstances. But so it means that climate predictions get a huge benefit from weather, all the effort that's gone into weather 
uh, prediction. I, I've been trying to get a good number on how much we've invested in weather prediction, but it, it's certainly 100, 100 billion dollars or more, probably more, probably closer to a trillion dollars that we've invested since 1950 when we did the first uh, numerical weather predictions. So, so I've been thinking about how can we make better economic models because I think a lot of the problems we're having in the world right now are at least in part caused by economics and the interaction of economics with mass sociology. Some mixture of political science, uh, response to technological change, which I think uh, our cultural institutions are lagging, our technological progress, and um, you know, since now the 70s, uh, the median wage has been close to flat at the same time that we've overall been, you know, the rich have been getting richer at a rate of three, two or three percent per year. And uh, so I, I, a lot of the factors that I think are driving the problems we're having involve the interaction of the economy with everything else. And I think we need to pursue some radically different approaches making economic models. Um, you know, I, I think it, it's interesting to look at, reflect on the way we do economic modeling now uh, and, and how do those models work and what are the basic ideas they're built on. Um, we got an unfortunate taste of the, the ways in which they don't work when in 2006, some prescient economists at the New York Fed asked Furbus, the leading econometric model that's used to forecast things like GDP and stuff like that. They said, Furbus, what happens if housing prices drop by 20%? This is in 2006. So they were, these guys were on top of it. They asked exactly the right question because, in fact, over the next two years, housing prop prices dropped by almost 30%. So they had the right question. But Furbus came back and said, not much, you know, it's a little bit of discomfort in the economy, but not much. So the answer Furbus gave them was off by a factor of 20. And it's because it, it wasn't capturing the key things that actually ultimately later took place. Now, you know, since then, economists have focused a lot of effort on putting, coupling financial markets better into uh, their, their models for the macroeconomy. Um, Issues like default are now in those models. So they have made some serious attempts to fix that, but I still, I think there's still a good chance that when we have the next crisis, if similar questions get asked, we'll get similarly bad answers. And so then it's, uh, the question is, how can we do better? And and you know, I think the first thing one has to say is that it's a really hard problem. Um, you know, economics is a lot harder than physics because people can think. And if you make a prediction about what's going to happen in the future, people may look at your prediction and respond to it and automatically invalidate your prediction by behaving in a way that makes your prediction bad. And um, so predicting, making predictions about economics is really hard. 
You know, fortunately, I think the most interesting things we want to do aren't to predict what GDP is going to do next month, but rather to make predictions about what happens if we tinker with the system, if we change this, the rules so that, say, people can't use as much leverage, uh, or if we put interest rates at this level instead of that level, what happens to the world when we do that? So those don't necessarily require forecasts in the same sense as predicting tomorrow's weather. It's more like climate prediction. Uh, so that's a bit of an easier problem in some ways, but it can be hard in others because if you have a system like the economy that depends on thinking people, people, you have to have a good model for how they're going to think and how are they going to respond to the changes you're making. You know, it's um, peculiar to see how one's life gets shaped by quirky things. When I was a graduate student uh, with Norman Packard, we decided to take on the problem of beating roulette. So we ended up building what turned out to be the first wearable digital computer. And we were the first people to actually take a computer into a casino and successfully predict the outcome of roulette and make a profit on it. Uh, we were preceded by Claude Shannon and Ed Thorpe, who did it in their basement, but never actually took it into the casino successfully. Um, uh, but so that kind of set me on a course somehow of prediction being my thing. Never occurred to me I would do that before. And so when I uh, was studying chaos, I kept thinking, well, maybe there's a way to predict stuff and actually take advantage of chaos. And so drawing on my roulette experience, I came up with an algorithm for just taking a time series and building a nonlinear model of a time series so that if you were looking at low dimensional chaotic behavior, you could make better predictions about you know, a, a, some short time ahead. The chaos eventually would overwhelm your predictions, but you could still beat a standard model. In fact, in some cases, we could beat standard models pretty well by doing that. And so then I went around talking about our applications to turbulent fluid flows and ice ages and sunspots and things like that. And some clown in the audience would always say, well, have you tried applying this to the stock market? And, um, you know, I was approaching 10 years of being at Los Alamos. And Los Alamos at 10 years, they give you a little non-bayware nut dish to commemorate 10 years of service. So that kind of freaked me out. I didn't really want to, uh, you know, I figured if I did that, then I'd be there at 20 years and 30 years. And so I left just before they gave me the nut dish. And Norman and I started a company called Prediction Company that predicted the stock market. So we built a system after, you know, many years of hard work, we built a system that actually made pretty reliable predictions of certain aspects of the stock market. I mean, we were betting not on the big movements, but on the little ripples. And um, so, but you know, we could predict the idiosyncratic movements of stocks a month out pretty well. And that system has made good profits and it's still being traded. It's been hugely elaborated on since then, but it's still being traded and still making money. Uh, but, you know, that wasn't my uh, goal in life. So after eight years, I quit and um, went back to um, academia, except this time at the Santa Fe Institute. And I decided to put my complex systems background together with my domain knowledge about financial markets and try and create better theories for what actually makes the financial system and the economy tick. Well, the theories are essentially 
taking, relaxing some of the assumptions that are made in standard economic models. The biggest one, in my opinion, is equilibrium. So a standard economic model assumes that you have an agent who has a utility function, which sort of measures their goals or what, what they want. The agent maximizes their utility. Uh, they have some way of forming expectations about the world. The strongest form would be rational expectation, which means I, I have a good model of the world and I understand everybody else's model of the world and I understand them too. And I can think about all of these and I know what other people are going to do and I can optimize my utility with respect to that. And the key equilibrium assumption is that outcomes will match expectations. So I form, we form our expectations and the outcomes statistically match our expectations. That doesn't mean we're right every time, but that means if we think on average that you know, GDP is going to go up by 2%, on average the GDP goes up by 2%, though we might actually observe it go down because we're not going to observe the average case every time. But So that's how the standard model starts. And then the standard model, you know, the history of economics is that over the last 25 or 30 years, they've been putting in more and more restrictions based on behavioral stuff. Economists realized starting in the 80s that people aren't rational. And um, I should, when I say economists, I mean, there were always some economists who said, well, actually, people aren't rational. But the mainstream view in 1980 was that, was roughly, well, maybe people aren't rational, but let's see how far we can get with rational models because uh, they're well-defined, they're clear, we can solve them. Otherwise, we're sort of lost because as soon as you don't let people be rational, well, how do they think? It's complicated. You get lost in the wilderness of bounded rationality, as it's called. There's, it's, it's, there's too many ways for people to be non-rational. Well, Kahneman is one of the behavioral economists who uh, has pointed out ways in which people are not rational. Now, in my opinion, though, he didn't go nearly far enough. I mean, Kahneman says, well, people don't use utility, they use prospect theory. But prospect theory is pretty close to utility, and it's still a pretty poor model of what actually motivates people. Pros prospect theory just says people don't, I mean, with utility, you take something like the logarithm of your wealth, and you say the goal of somebody is to maximize the log of their wealth or their consumption through time. You know, appropriately discounted, so you think about not just your consumption today, but your consumption tomorrow, which isn't quite as important as your consumption today, and you try and maximize that through your lifetime. Prospect theory makes it a little bit more complicated because it treats your losses differently than your gains and, you know, jiggles the formula around a little bit. But, yeah, I, I just, I'm not convinced by either one. And, I mean, or let, let me actually rephrase that because I think both of them are reasonable starting points. Uh, um, utility does give you a useful way to put somebody's goals into a model and take into account the fact that we have goals. And so it's actually a very reasonable starting point, but we need to go beyond it. And so the way economists have been going beyond it is to put in what are called frictions, which are essentially constraints of various sorts. Institutional constraints, um, uh, 
an, an example would be in a macro model, there will be, you know, in, in an idealized model, wages would just always adjust so the labor market cleared, so that the supply equaled the demand. But people early on noticed that that's actually not so easy to do because if you're running a company, it's pretty hard to constantly be adjusting the wages of your employees. And in particular, it's hard to lower their wages. It's hard to go in and say, well, you know, labor markets uh, uh, gotten tighter, and so um, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to lower your wage. That doesn't work very well. So they put in friction that says wages are sticky. And so, um, so macro models have been proceeding by putting more and more of these constraints on idealized models in which you typically have a representative agent or maybe a distribution of agents. And, and that, you know, that agent who might represent a household reasons about their consumption over their lifetime and makes a bunch of planning decisions and then updates those as new information is received about what's going on in the economy. Um, most of us don't really function that way. And, and they, so they're putting in more and more constraints to make that happen. But I've, I'm arguing that we need to really um, uh, seriously re-examine the whole program. And uh, in particular, to build simulations of the economy at a much more fine-grained level that take advantage of all the data we have about individuals and take advantage of the opportunities that the internet offers us for gathering data in a very much more richer and detailed way about people. If you look at the way places like the Fed make predictions, they've developed a system that they've been working on for a long time. It's a represent, it represents a long line of effort that goes back to you know, the middle of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And um, the uh, when, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, people realized we need to keep track of what the economy is doing. So they started gathering data. They set up a whole procedure for having firms fill out surveys, for having the census take data, for collecting a lot of data on economic activity, processing that data, and producing something called national accounting. So they can give numbers like GDP, unemployment, and so on. But the whole system's set up for producing aggregate numbers at a very slow time scale. The numbers are, some of the numbers come out once a quarter, some of the numbers come out once a year. The numbers are typically lagged because it takes a lot of time to hand process all this data. And, and the numbers are often revised as much as a year or two later. But that system has been built to work in tandem with the models that have been built, which also process this very aggregated, high-level summaries of what the economy's doing. So it's a, it's a 20th century technology that's been refined. And, and I have to say, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's very useful and it's, uh, it represents a fairly high level of achievement that we can do that. But the internet has really changed all that. Internet and, the, and computers. Um, with the internet, we can gather rich, detailed data about uh, what the economy is doing at the level of individuals. We don't have to rely on surveys. We can just grab the data. Um, and furthermore, with a computer, you can potentially simulate what 300 million 
agents are doing at the level of the individuals. You can simulate what every company is doing in the United States. You can simulate every bank. Those are achievable goals, but we're not doing that. Nothing close to that. Uh, you know, we could, we could achieve what I just said with a technology that, you know, with an effort that's, say, easier than what Google does when you type a search in. Um, but we're not pursuing that at all. Uh, my feeling is we need to start going down that road. We need to start creating a, a, a new technology that runs side by side with the old one that makes its predictions in a very different way than the existing models do. And uh, I think having models like that could give us a lot more guidance about where we're going and, and uh, you know, keep the ship from hitting the fan. So I'm, I'm at the Institute for New Economic Thinking at the Oxford Martin School. And I'm also in the mathematics department at the University of Oxford. I'm a professor of mathematics. And I'm the director of complexity economics there. So um, we're doing research with my, uh, I have 10 graduate students and five postdocs, and uh, we're doing research to build models of the economy. Um, we're building models at several different levels. Uh, have one small group that's working on models of the financial system. So the idea there is to take the um, portfolios of the banks and the other large financial institutions, a snapshot at some point in time, and be able to do various tests to see how much systemic risk there is at this point in time. Because you can model uh, what, what those banks are doing and how they affect each other and test if one of them does this, how does that propagate around the system? Is it stable or unstable and what happens? So that's one line of effort. Another line of effort is on housing markets. We're trying to simulate housing markets. Uh, we worked with the Bank of England <coughs> to try and analyze policies. For example, about a year ago or maybe a year and a half ago, the Bank of England instituted a policy uh, to that 85, that banks had to have 85% of their portfolios, their lending portfolios, to people whose loan to income ratio is uh, below three and a half. So it's a way of ensuring some stability in the financial system. Well, we did a simulation of housing markets to see what, how, how that policy would affect things. Um, We're right now trying to work on regional differences in housing prices. Can we understand why, quantitatively, why prices in London are as much higher as they are in other parts of the UK? Uh, and, and actually make a map of how housing prices fan out around the UK so that the, the um, policymakers can think about, well, if we put a rail line in here or if we stimulate this business over here, what will that do to everything? And housing prices are an important part of the story. Or what kind of policies should we institute to help? Uh, should we be encouraging new housing developments, and if so, where? And at which part of the housing spectrum? And so on. So we can simulate that kind of stuff to help them see what it would do. Um, we've also been thinking about the insurance business. 
there's something called solvency two, which is a rule about how insurance companies, uh, how much capital they have to hold in reserve, what kind of models they're allowed to use. Uh, we have some concerns that the restrictions on the models they, they're allowed to use may be dangerous because they force all the insurance companies to herd and do more or less the same thing and make the system fragile so that we might see a collapse of the insurance business. We've also been looking at technological change. So we gather a lot of data on technologies through time to try and see what are the patterns and how they change. And um, the answers are, are kind of surprising in a way. Out of the perhaps 200 technologies we've looked at, there's about 50 of them that obey some version of Moore's Law. So in other words, if you look at the cost of the technology through time, the cost is dropping exponentially at some rate. Now, um, computers are uh, an outlier in that they drop really fast. Computer prices drop at 50% per year. Transistors, the cost of a transistor drops at 50%, 40% per year. Um, actually, the extreme outlier is, is uh, gene sequencing, which has been dropping at almost 100% per year. But other technologies drop too, like solar photovoltaics have been dropping at 10% per year for a long time. Since the first uh, photocell went into the Vanguard satellite in 1956, uh, the cost of solar cells has dropped by more than a factor of 3,000. And in contrast, if you look at, say, the price of coal, price of coal fluctuates, but it's been roughly constant once you adjust for inflation for 150 years. The price of oil has been roughly constant for 150 years. Okay, it fluctuates up and down. You know, we know it's been from more than $100 a barrel down to, you know, $20 or $30 a barrel. But it bumps up and down, but there's no overall trend like there is for these other technologies. And so uh, we've been looking at these technologies to try and understand why some technologies improve so much faster than others. That's hard. We have some ideas. But uh, we've also been trying to think how we can use this. And in particular, um, we've come up with a method for forecasting future technology prices. It's a very simple forecasting method. You just you know, assume that more, model Moore's Law by a random walk with drift. But the nice thing about our model is it's actually a probabilistic model. So we don't just say, we don't make bold, bald and sort of misleading statements like solar energy will be a factor of you know, four cheaper by 2030. Uh, we make probabilistic statements like the most likely cost for solar energy is that it will drop a factor of four by 2030, but there's a 5% chance it won't drop in cost at all because we've taken all of our many technologies and we built our model by, um, uh, first of all, make, using our model to make forecasts and then seeing how well those forecasts do and showing that actually the forecasts uh, are pretty well matched by our model. The accuracy of the forecast is well matched by our model. So we don't just make a forecast, we say how good that forecast is. And we say what the range of possibilities is and what their probabilities are. And, and we've been using this to um, think about uh, 
investment in things like climate change. So how much, how much do we have to invest in which technology should we be investing in to get to zero carbon energy emissions as soon as possible? And the answers we're finding look really good. Uh, the answers uh, indicate that um, we're, we're going to get there quickly. Uh, solar energy will probably contribute at least 20 or 30 percent within about 10 years. Um, and again, there's some big error bars around these numbers. Um, and that the, the other interesting things, if, if you look at the net present value, that is, what is it, what's the net cost of making the transition to climate change? Our model suggests that because energy is actually going to get cheaper than it is now as a result of this, the net present value is actually negative, meaning we're going to benefit. The net cost is that it's not a net cost, it's a net gain. So when I've said we, I mean members, me and people in my group and some other collaborators. The technology work that I was just speaking about is, was done with Francois Lafond, and the work on technology portfolios was done, was done with him as well as Rupert Way, who are two of the postdocs in my group. Um, the work we did with the Bank of England was something, we basically just did that for free. Uh, we viewed it as an opportunity to have an influence on what happened. Uh, it's nice to see your work actually get used. I, I, get, I get pursued by um, hedge funds and the like that want me to consult for them, and I've done some consulting. Um, we actually did some consulting for a hedge fund that was trying, was thinking about technology investments. And so we could advise them about questions like robotics versus solar cells. You know, wh where do we think they're at and so on. So we did an analysis using our tools for them. So we do a little bit of that. That's not my primary interest right now. I, I had, I had a, a major moment in my life when I, I'd been in a prediction company for eight years. We were finally doing really well. And I was at a fork. I mean, my intention had been to stay for five. I'd already made more money than I had intended to make. And I just thought, well, what do I want to say on my deathbed? You know, do I want to say I made a lot of money? Or do I want to say I, I uh, got to pursue my love of science and I maybe did something good for the world? So I've, I've been spending the last 10 years, in a sense, using the expertise I gained from predicting roulette and predicting the stock market and trying to apply it to uh, you know, helping, helping the world do something useful for humanity. My, my frustration, I have to say, is it's much easier to get funded to beat the stock market uh, than it is to help, help the world. Yeah. And so, you know, sometimes I think I should have just gone on doing hedge fund stuff and given my money away. That might have been more effective rather than trying to go be the one that does it myself. I, I am, though, I, I have to say, I am thinking about starting another company. And I'm being driven to that because uh, of two things. One is that um, I think it may be easier to fund the things I want to do. I want to do a big project now. I, I want to build this system that can make better predictions about the economy in general. And I want to build something that all the central banks will want to use. In a sense, a prediction company, I felt like we built, we built using a caricature of you know, brain anatomy, we built a cerebellum of the market.
right? We, we looked at patterns that happened in the market in the past. We found patterns that seemed to be consistent and we made bets on them. We had no idea why those patterns happened. Um, but what I want to do now is build a cerebrum. So I want to build a system that actually decomposes the pieces of the market into its parts, that you know, models the causal mechanisms, and that, um, that allows us to think about those important what-if questions of what if we change the economy, we change the rules of how things work, uh, would we like the results better or not? And uh, uh, now, you know, we've been chipping away at that problem at Oxford, and uh, I love being an academic. It's wonderful because I get, you know, I get to work with the smartest people in the world. Um, but it's hard to do a really focused effort. To do what I want to do now, I feel like I need a team. I need to do what we did at Prediction Company. You know, we, we hired 30 people, we put them all in the same building, and, and we said, okay, this is the problem. And we're gonna work on this problem full time until we crack yeah. it. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I decided to start another company. Th th this time, the company's going to be much more public focused. One of the problems with Prediction Company is that if you're predicting the stock market, well, you have to keep what you're doing a secret. And, uh, you know, out of respect for your investors and your, you just have to do that. This company is going to be much more open. The goal is to make money, but it's also to create an open source toolkit that everybody can use as its core. We'll, we'll put on some add-ons on the outside to make a profit, but we, I want to have the open source toolkit in the center so that we can lift the whole technology of prediction up. I came to Oxford for a couple, of re several reasons. Um, uh, one is I got offered a job there. It seemed like a good opportunity, and I, I could do. I got an offer, a job to do what I wanted to do. I like working with really smart people. Um, I wanted to be in Europe. I aspired to be a member of the European Union, a European Union citizen. As it works out, I will probably get my British passport about two or three months before Britain leaves the European Union. Um, so that's a bit of a disappointment. Uh, Fotini, my wife, is Greek, and uh, she wanted to be back in Europe. Uh, it was an adventure to come here. And the alternative, or the complexity economic scene that I'm a part of, is uh, much more centered in Europe than it is in America. Um, the American economics establishment is very conformist. We're, I'm very worried about uh, a lot of things, and I think that uh, <coughs> I think that we need new ideas about economics because we need to change the way we run our economies. Mm -hmm. And we, and we in this case is a group of us, including Eric Pinehocker and Steen Rasmussen and uh, some others, are thinking about. Um, well, trying to create these new principles and trying to connect them into politics, like uh, Friedman and Hayek and others did when they developed neoliberalism. They developed the ideas and they also connected the ideas to politicians and ended up convincing people like Thatcher and Reagan to pursue them. I think we need some new ideas. Those, weren't the, those aren't the ideas we need now but we need to provide the intellectual basis for them. And so I really, uh, 
you know, the bigger picture of trying to create a fusion of political scientists and sociologists and um, other thinkers to connect that to economics to give a more coherent scheme for how we go forward in the world.